Lovely to be here with you um, and Ellen this morning. If you have a Bible, can you turn to the book of Exodus? The Old Testament, second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 11. As Malcolm said, I was here three years ago, uh, right after Dundee relegated Dundee United, so it was an easy uh, answer when I got asked to preach. I was there in a heartbeat uh, to spend time with some Dundee United fans, uh, more reticent on this uh, time round, but hey, you can't take football too seriously, it will break your heart, and it does break your heart. Anyway... <coughs> Exodus chapter 11. We'll kind of be looking at 11 and 12 today, uh, but we'll read 11 just now and then we'll work through 12 in little bits uh, a little bit later on. So let's just read from verse 1. It's quite a short chapter. Now the Lord said to Moses, I'll bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that he will let you go from here, and when he does he'll drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbours for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favourably disposed towards the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says, About midnight I will go throughout, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at our handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me, saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. Thanks be to God for his word. (coughs) Forgive me. You don't have to look too far in this day and age to find somebody, someone, somewhere, anywhere, ridiculing the Bible or dismissing the Bible. And I wonder how you handle that as someone who comes to church, and I would imagine for many of you today uh, are believers in Christ. I wonder how you handle that. Find any news story on the internet, on social media, you go to a comment section, any story remotely connected to Christianity or to Scripture, and you will find these Bible scholars who have never touched the Bible in their life, uh, come on and comment and offer offer their uh, perils of wisdom, uh, born out of very often sheer ignorance. I wonder how you respond to stuff like that. For for me, and this may sound very strange, bear with me until I finish this point, because it might sound a little bit strange. I find that for many people who dismiss the Bible, their position is completely logical for a person who has heard a little bit about the Bible but never bothered to read it. If they've heard a little bit about the Bible but never never bothered to read it, I understand why they would come to the conclusion that they've come to. Because humanly speaking, the Bible should make no sense. Again, bear with me here. Humanly speaking, the Bible should make no sense. Think about this for a second. If I told you that a book existed... 
written by a huge number of people who, by and large, for the most part, never even met each other. Never even met each other. Who were not working in tandem in any way over the course of nearly two millennia based in three different continents, in two different languages, in a time long before the printing press or any even remotely modern invention. If I told you that such a book existed, what would you expect to find when you picked it up? What would you expect to find when you picked it up and you read it? You'd maybe expect a wild collection of different tales different people, you'd expect a bit of a mishmash, wouldn't you? You'd expect a lot of stuff kind of jumbled together. What you would not expect to find is anything even remotely coherent in terms of a, a flow or a narrative happening throughout. You wouldn't expect a story to be unfolding, would you? You'd expect just a kind of a mishmash of everything. Yet, what do we find when we open our Bibles? What do we find when we read our Bibles? We, we find unity. 66 different distinct units, yes, but one book. <clears throat> Consider these words, wonderful, wonderful words, uh, by a scholar who died a wee while ago called Edmund Clowney. He says these words, this is fantastic. The reason that we treat the Bible as one book is that the collection as a whole, once we start to explore it, proves to have an organic coherence, fits together, an, orga an organic coherence that is simply stunning. Books written centuries apart seem to have been designed for the express purpose of supplementing and illuminating each other. There is throughout one leading character, God the Creator, one historical perspective, world redemption. One focal figure, Jesus of Nazareth, who is both Son of God and Saviour. And one solid body of harmonious teaching about God and godliness. Truly, the inner unity of the Bible is miraculous. A sign and a wonder challenging the unbelief of our sceptical age. Could have been written yesterday, it wasn't, it was written a fair while ago. That could have been written yesterday. And in my experience, over time, and I'm sure for many of yours as well, Mr. Clowney, who said those words, is correct. He is correct. And perhaps you're here today, and if you're being really, really honest, you are yet to be convinced of the wonders of the Bible. Because the reality is for the vast majority of Christians, they fall in love with Jesus before they fall in love with the Bible. They fall in love with Jesus and make a profession and a very sincere profession, but it may take some time for them to truly grasp the wonders of Scripture. For many Christians, this is still a difficult book, many years after being saved. And they maybe struggle to know how to, to fit it all together. Maybe that's you today and I sympathize with you. I know what that feels like very much. But the Bible is coherent. It is one grand story. It complements one another. And there's so many different angles where we could explore this today. We could do a series on this in itself, and, and it would take a lifetime. So many different themes and types throughout Scripture that ultimately find their fulfillment in the person of Christ and his gospel. We're going to focus on one angle this morning in this book of Exodus in chapter 11. And to be faithful to the Bible, we're going to consider the story in its original context. 
We're going to zoom into the story in the real life experience of real life people many thousand years ago. But we're also going to zoom out. We're going to take this story, but we're going to take it from a different perspective and see its significance in in the grand overarching story of the Bible. And what we will see is that this story has a cosmic significance. It has a relevance for you today. Now to anyone maybe who doesn't come to church or isn't a Christian and has maybe not much of an understanding of the Bible, what I just said would sound stupid. How could a story of an ancient people thousands of years ago have relevance today for how we live our lives in the here and now in 2019. I hope that you will realize this is true today, the wonder of Scripture. So let's zoom into chapter 11. Let's get really into the the nuts and bolts of it and see what's going on here. And let's try to imagine the intensity of the moment that's being represented to you, the moment that's being spoken of here. Some of you will be very familiar with this story. Some of you perhaps, maybe this is new to you possibly, but let's just try and gather what's going on here. Think about what it would have been like to have been a Hebrew or an Israelite, one of God's people living in the time of Exodus chapter 11. You've possibly spent all your life living as a slave, living under an evil, oppressive king or the pharaoh. Living under the regime, the the rule of an empire that has made you and all your native people slave. But more than that, you have a king who is paranoid. A king who is worried that the number of your people is so great that you might one day form an army and rebel against him. So he needs a way to control his slave labor force and control the population growth. So he puts a law in place to control the numbers. And the law is given primarily to the midwives. That whenever a Hebrew boy is born, kill him. Have him killed. Girls are allowed to live. Maybe because they wouldn't fight in an army. Maybe because they would be used for some horrific, awful, vile purpose. But thankfully the midwives rebel. But the king's not finished. He's ruthless, he keeps on going. The next law is not just for the midwives, but it's for the whole nation to ensure that baby boys, uh, baby boy, uh, can't speak, baby boys from uh, the Hebrew people are thrown into the river. This is the regime that the Hebrews lived under. Now try to imagine this for a second. If you've just given birth, or your wife's just given birth to a little boy, and you're sitting at home, with the family, mum's nursing the newborn baby boy, and you hear the footsteps coming to the door. And you hear the banging at the door, and you know who it is, and you know why they're there. It's it's an Egyptian official. And the husband in this situation has to decide what to do. Do I put up a fight when they come for the baby and risk all of us getting killed? Or other horrific purposes? Or do I try and calm my wife down and pull her away so they can take the baby? This is life as a Hebrew in Exodus chapter 11. This is what life is like. But what we see throughout this really awful story in these opening chapters, we see God's at work. We see that God hears the cry of his people. And he has a plan And his plan is that one of these baby boys would slip through the cracks, as it were. 
and he would be raised kind of under, under <coughs> dual citizenship. He's born a Hebrew, but he's going to be raised as an Egyptian. His name is Moses. And God decides that he would be the one who would be chosen to confront this evil king, to calm him down, to change his mind. No, the plan is that he would confront Pharaoh, win him over, get him to send the people away. Which seems like a ridiculous request, a job nobody would want to approach this evil king. That's the job that Moses is given. But if you're a Hebrew living in this time, you're very, very skeptical that Moses is going to be successful. You think there's no chance this is ever going to happen. You've maybe heard stories in the past of what God did in the past with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on. But that, that was a while ago now. That was a long time ago. Hope is waning if not gone. God's not going to do anything for us in this situation. That's what you're probably thinking if you're a Hebrew. And then over time things start to happen and things start to get kind of weird. You notice that that this guy, Moses and his brother, start to have these routine meetings with Pharaoh. And you're not sure what they're speaking about, perhaps. But what you do know is that every time he meets with them, right afterwards, something weird happens. Something kind of unusual happens. First the river turns to blood, and then frogs appear everywhere. I mean everywhere frogs appear. And then gnats and then flies and then the livestock die and then the Egyptians are covered in these awful, awful boils and then the most horrific hailstorm, then locusts, then three days of darkness. Every time they meet with the king, something crazy happens, but nothing seems to be changing in your position. Pharaoh stands firm and you're still a slave. But we never get the impression that God is likely to give up. We never get the impression that God backs down and says, you win this time, Pharaoh. God is persistent. And he's actually quite happy for Pharaoh's heart to be hardened. He's quite happy to use the stubbornness of this evil man for his glory. Because the time will come when he'll perform one more sign, one more strange thing will happen after the final meeting. And that's the real sign where things will happen. And that's what we read about a little bit in chapter 11. And Moses, in chapter 11, what we've just read, Moses and the people are being prepared for what's about to go down. And God's essentially saying to the people, this is the one. He said no to letting you go all these other times. I've performed miracle after miracle, plague after plague, and he keeps saying no. But it's time to pack your bags because this is going to be the one. Things are really going to happen now. And if up until this point, Pharaoh or or the Egyptian people had thought that this God was tormenting them with all these plagues, the fact is he's actually being graceful with them. He's being graceful. He's being patient. He's patient with them. He's long-suffering. He gives them chance after chance. God is patient. God is long-suffering. But he is not eternally patient. We don't read about an eternally patient God in the Bible. We read about a God whose wrath is sure, which is difficult for us to read. And his wrath is about to be known (coughs) in this part of the Bible for the tenth plague that comes. It's not frogs appearing or flies or gnats. The tenth plague is, of course, the death of the firstborn son. 
all across Egypt. And for Egypt, it says a time of horrific mourning is about to occur. But for Israel, for the Hebrews, for God's people, the mood will be very, very different. For Egypt, it'll be horrific, but for Israel, verse 7 of what we read says that you'll not even hear a dog barking, it'll be peaceful. But for Israel, in chapter 12, there's more to come, and they get some more instructions. Let me just, if you've got a Bible open, just look at chapter 12, and what I'm going to do, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, I'm going to read selected verses. If you've not got a Bible, just listen in, you'll get the gist of it, and try and see what's going on here, because God's given more instructions There's more instructions that he gives here. We'll go from verse 1. We'll jump to this a bit at a time. Verse 1 said, The Lord says to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Jump down to verse 5. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. Remember that part. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Jump down to verse 7. They are to take some of the blood of the lamb and to put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where, where, they, are to eat the, where they eat the lambs. Jump down to verse 12. On that night I'll pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals and I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. A lasting ordinance. Jump down to verse 17. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. Because it was on this day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Down to verse 23. Speaking of what's about to happen. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he'll see the blood on the top and sides of the door frames and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. And down to the last couple of verses, 29 and 30. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well, Pharaoh and all his officials. And the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Forgive me. So, what's happening here? What's happening here? In light of explaining what's about to happen, the horror of the firstborn son all across Egypt dying, and the way in which Israel can be spared from that by wiping the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, what happened is they're getting two sets of instructions. There's two sets of instructions for God's people, and both of them involve a lamb. The meat of the lamb will be used in a a feast. They're being told to have a meal. Have a feast, involve a lamb, and the blood of the lamb is what's going to spare you on this horrific night when the angel of the Lord comes through. 
You'll take the blood and you'll wipe it on the doorpost. So the blood being shed for them is very significant. The blood on the doorpost, that's the grounds by which the angel of God will pass over them and spare the lives of their boys. So they get instructions about what to do on that occasion, the meal they'll have and what they have to do on that occasion. But the second detail is that this isn't going to be a one-off event. On one sense it is. God passing through is a, is a one-off event. But this meal that they're called to have is going to happen every year. God is inaugurating a feast, as it were. An annual feast. And every single year after this, they will come together, they'll take the lamb, they'll do what they have to do, as commanded in Scripture, and they will celebrate this time, and they will call it Passover. Of course, because the Lord passes over the house of Israel. No Israelite boys were killed. And the significance of this feast that they're going to take year after year, year after year, the reason why they have to keep on doing this and remember what happened is primarily theological. If you forgive that word, I know some Christians don't get a bit scared of that word. But simply that the reason that they're going to do it is that it's going to teach them about God. By having this feast every year, they will remember who God is. So the question we have to ask is, what are they learning about God in this whole horrific scene? What are they learning about God from the whole remarkable experience, from the slavery, the plagues, the death of the firstborn, the blood in the door frames, the Passover, the exodus that's about to come when they cross the Red Sea? What are they learning about Yahweh, their God, through this whole experience that's so important that they have to do it every single year? What's so significant? There's numerous answers to that question. I want to highlight three things. Three things they learn about their God that are so significant. One, God is sovereign over all history. God is sovereign over all history. There is no ruler, no king, no pharaoh, no empire that threatens God. That can derail his plans. God is always, always on the throne. Now think how, it would, how important it would be if you were Jewish to remember this fact in years to come when Assyria or Babylon or the Roman Empire comes into town and God's laws are being ignored and even the prophets and priests supposed to be speaking for the people of God they're off doing something else or teaching lies think how important it would be to remember on those days God is sovereign over all history God is still on the throne no ruler, no power, no empire can derail his plans his victory is certain you need to remember that sometimes these people certainly did that's one thing they learn by taking this Passover second thing, God's judgment is sure God's judgment is certain. His justice is perfect and his righteous hand will work for him victory. He is not a God that you ever take lightly. He is a God who will punish evil. As we've said already, he is patient, but his judgment for sin will happen. When they take this feast every year, they remember this. They remember that God does not stand by forever. His justice is sure. His judgment is sure. He's sovereign over history. His judgment is sure. And thirdly, God works salvation for his people. God works salvation for his people with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. 
He works salvation for his people from their enemies. He saves them from himself and his certain wrath. And to be really specific, to give the game away where we're going, he saves them by means of a substitute and by the blood of a lamb. And so every single year, as generations change, as parents tell children and grandparents, you know, generations keep on teaching one another, the Israelites will gather together to enjoy this feast and they'll remember these things. And these truths about who God is, you might say, they form the backdrop to the Passover for years to come. Whenever Passover is taken, these truths are being remembered. They're being amplified for all to hear. And what we find is that this Passover survives and endures. This feast survives and endures. The original Passover, as we've said, was a one-off experience, a one-off historical event. But its impact reverberates throughout the history of this nation. And even though the Old Testament is a, a bit of a car crash... It's not a story of wonderfully faithful people, is it? It's a story of a bit of a car crash. God's people are repeatedly unfaithful, often in the most wild and horrific ways. We do occasionally get a bright spot in the Old Testament. It's like a downward spiral, but every now and again you get a little bright spot. And where God's people will fall under some kind of godly leadership. And there's a time of renewal in the land, and a time of repentance in the land, and there's a commitment from the people to change their ways, to get rid of the idols. Never lasts for that long, but it does happen for a little while. You come across kings like Hezekiah and Josiah, if those names are new to you, you can read them in your own time. But when they return back from exile and Ezra leads, uh, reads the law of the God, all of these events, these big celebrations, these big worshipful events, they are all marked by the fact that what do they do on these occasions? They take the Passover. They take the Passover just as God commanded, and when they do so, they remember these truths. They remember who God is. Kind of a parallel a little bit, I think, with our own Christian experience. When you go through a dry spell in your Christian faith, or a time perhaps of open sin in your Christian walk, and you come back to the Lord, maybe after a bad day or a bad week or somewhere longer, and you you have this almost this reawakening of stuff you already knew. And you remember who God is. God's still not changed. He's the God you knew years before. He's still not changed. And you remember. And you like this, this reawakening. Kind of like what it would have been like in the Old Testament. Where they come together again. They remember who God is and they take a Passover. This is the original context of this passage. Of the Passover. But now we're going to zoom out and we're going to think a little bit of the bigger picture. Of this, how this story fits in on a much, much, much wider scale, a much, much wider perspective. And we're going to fast forward to the New Testament. And we're going to fast forward to the time when Jesus, the Son of God, is on the scene. Walking this earth. And these four gospel writers introduce us to the Son of God. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. They introduce us to Jesus. How do they do it? How does John do it? Think for a second how John introduces us to Jesus. Has this amazing prologue about Jesus being the Word, who was with God and was God. But basically, the first time that Jesus appears in John's Gospel, the first time he walks on stage, as it were, in John's Gospel, how does it happen? Is John the Baptist introducing him? 
saying, behold, here he is, check him out. And how does he describe Jesus? It's a phrase, I know some of you probably, you know exactly what this phrase is before I say it. You've heard it that many times. But think how specific and how curious this phrase is. He describes Jesus, he introduces Jesus to us as the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The lamb of God, rather, I should say, who takes away the sin of the world. The phrase lamb of God only appears in John chapter 1. Nowhere else in the Bible is the phrase lamb of God actually used. Now we've probably heard that verse many times before in our lives. But that's a really specific introduction to Jesus. Could have said many, many things. Could have presented Jesus in many ways. But he chooses to use this curious phrase, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I would maybe strike home to some of the Jewish people. Lamb of God who takes away sin. That sounds very interesting. We also learn in the New Testament when Jesus is on the scene is that, again, as we just mentioned, despite how much Israel has messed up through the ages, this feast has endured. It's still being taken, still being taken this day actually. But in the first century, it's, it's being taken. And when you read through these four Gospels, you find that all of the Gospel writers communicate to us that it's really, really significant that we know that Passover was the time when Jesus made his journey to Jerusalem to be crucified. There's something really specific about that. In the three synoptic gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of them make loads of references in the last couple of chapters that the Passover is the occasion this is the time when it happens. Not only are the events of Jesus' death significant, of course they are, but also the timing of Jesus' death is extremely significant. Almost like it's trying to teach us something, that there's something to be learned about the time that Jesus died, about the fact that he died at Passover. Jesus is resolute in his mind that this is when it has to happen. Because there's times, if you know your, your Jesus stories, there are times when he could have been captured times when he could have died before that and he says it's not my hour or he sneaks away through the crowd when they're about to chuck him off a cliff he says no not now not now not now Passover now this is the occasion and there's two scenes again ones that we're extremely familiar with I'd imagine two scenes that just bring it all together one takes place in an upper room around a dinner table and one takes place the next day on a hillside called Golgotha, or Calvary. And as we consider these scenes just in the last five minutes or so, remember, we must, must remember that theological backdrop that forms the whole thing and brings the whole thing together. The whole story is resting on the, the theological backdrop, the fact that God is sovereign over all history. God's judgment is certain. God works salvation for his people. These truths are hanging in the air. On that occasion on Passover where Jesus is in the upper room and he takes bread and he breaks it and he takes the wine and he pours it and just like all those years ago when this new feast was being inaugurated on that awful day in, in Goshen in Exodus where the slaves gathered together to see what the tenth plague was going to be just like then Jesus with this bread and wine he's, he's inaugurating another new feast and with it he's starting this new covenant a new promise for God's people. 
Like the body of the lamb was eaten at Passover, so Jesus commands his disciples to eat his body. Like the blood of the lamb was shed, so the wine would be poured and would be drunk, and its purpose was in remembrance of him. Now I wonder, I wonder if the disciples had the faintest idea what was going on as Jesus is doing this. We know that meal was a meal of great confusion, of a lot of disciples wondering what on earth Jesus was speaking about as he poured out all these different truths. At Calvary, the next day, while the Jews were tucking into their lamb, Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is shedding his blood upon a cross. And if we're unsure as to what's going on, Peter, in his, uh, the first chapter of his epistle, first epistle, he describes it. He describes Jesus as a lamb without blemish or defect, which of course refers back to Exodus chapter 12 and verse 5. He's saying clearly, Jesus is our Passover lamb. It is his blood poured out that rescues us. Jesus is doing something new, something glorious, and something that holds these amazing truths together. And the glorious cosmic perspective of Scripture reveals to us that at the cross, as our Passover lamb was sacrificed, sacrificed, these three same truths are amplified. Firstly, God is sovereign over all history. John Stott puts it this way. Speaking of the cross, he says, What looked like the defeat of goodness by evil is also and more certainly the defeat of evil by goodness. Overcome there, he was himself overcoming. Crushed by the ruthless power of Rome, he was himself crushing the serpent's head. The victim was victor, and the cross is still the throne from which he rules the world. The darkest day in all history is one when God is still on his throne knows exactly what he is doing. Secondly, God's judgment is sure. His wrath is certain, as we've said, and we see it at the cross as Christ bears the wrath for our sin. Friends, never ever think, as is sometimes portrayed in, in certain conversations, that you have to conclude that God can only be either a God of love or a God of wrath, and that he can't be both. Never think you have to choose one of those two options. Because in scripture we see both and at the cross we see both. You may don't think of the God of wrath when you think of the cross. You think of the God of love and you're right to do so. But we also see the wrath of God at the cross because you see the awfulness of your sin. The awfulness of my sin that needed to be punished by a just God. But you also see the love of both Father and Son as Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah says the Lord was pleased to crush his servant. That's what Christ suffered on the cross. He took the wrath of his Father upon himself. We call this doctrine penal substitution or substitutionary atonement. And in every generation of Christians, there will be Christians who find this doctrine, this belief, very difficult to stomach and very difficult to handle. 900 years ago, one uh, theologian said this, speaking of the father punishing the son in our place. He said, how cruel and wicked it seems that anyone should demand the blood of an innocent man as the price for anything, or that it should in any way please him that an innocent man should be slain. 
Still less, God should consider the death of his son so agreeable that by it he should be reconciled to the whole world. And people don't like this, this doctrine. Nowadays you have uh, alleged ministers calling this doctrine cosmic child abuse. And you have committees for hymn books writing into Stuart Townend and Keith Getty asking if they could change the words if possible of the hymn in Christ alone because they can't quite stomach the line where it says that at the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Thankfully, they said no to that request in a way that was far more polite than I would have done so. They said no. This is what happened, though. The Savior stood in our place. And because he did, that's the only reason, the only reason that we can face tomorrow as a redeemed child of God is because Jesus stood in our place. Because he took our condemnation, we can now say that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the good news for us today because Christ took the wrath, because Christ Christ stood in our place. There is no condemnation. And that is why we know this third phenomenal theological truth that God loves to work salvation for his people. He loves to be the one who's saved. It was not a chore for God to save you. It was his delight to save you. Friends, do you know this Jesus this day? I don't know you this morning. I don't know your story. I don't know where you're from. I don't know how you got here today. But if there is anyone who does not know this Jesus, the one who stood in their place, may this be the day that they come to the cross and they come to see the Savior They come to see the one who would stand in their place to take the wrath that you and I deserve. And may may you come to know the immense sense of freedom that comes from knowing this Jesus who defeated death and rose again on the third day. And so as we finish, we can see way back, way, way back, that these ancient Hebrew slaves, they were given just a foretaste of what God was doing. They got clear instructions. They saw phenomenal things that we've not seen. But they really just got a a sneak preview, a foretaste of what God is doing. We've been given and we have received so much more in our Passover lamb. The lamb before whom we will gather and worship for all eternity. And how outrageous is it? That in this breathtaking ancient story of redemption that sweeps across the word of God, that you and I might be included in it. In 2019 in Ellen, as the true recipients of its blessing from God on high, chosen from before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in him. Praise God. I'm going to ask the musicians.